printing companies to hire, that kind of stuff. Uh, and so I'm here to kind of act as our moderator or get us started, and I'm going to introduce the, the panel here. Uh, so I have Brett Sobel, uh, who's in an economic game, a stock game. I'm just, I'm just blanking on now. Stockpile, your first game. You started a game company to do that. You work with a partner who's a thousand miles away, right? That's correct. You got it. All right. And your game uh, is getting very good reviews. People love that game. And uh, they, even though the economic theme is not super attractive to people, once they play it, they go, oh, this game is really good. And I just, you have a great commentary about some lessons you learned. We may ask you about that later. What else should I, I include about you? Uh, well, you have a day job. Yeah, this is your side I definitely business. have a day job, so I work in finance, hence the whole economic financial theme of our game, right? So it kind of ties together a bit of what I do in the real world with our side hobby. But, yeah, I can talk about anything related to publishing a game or even first-time designing. Cool. If you're curious, so. All right, and we have Ben Rossett, who is here representing Panda Game Manufacturing. If, you know, if your Kickstarter blows up big and you need, you need a big printer that's going to give you quality that you can count on, then Panda is for you. His day job is working for Panda, mm-hmm. as he can be a, get you the, hooked up with a rep to do your, your print run, answer the questions for you. And his side job is a game designer who's played between two cities. Oh, okay. A lot of you miss it out. That's a great game. Also, Brew Crafters Thank you. and other titles as well. Uh, what else do we know about you, Ben? Um, I, I also run a small gaming convention in Washington, D.C. Uh, called WashingCon. It's going to be our second year. It's coming up in about a month. So if you live in the Washington, D.C., Baltimore, kind of Richmond area, check out WashingCon.com and come on up and play some games. We're going to have Rob Davio there this year and a couple other big designers uh, as well. So well, that subway right. system stretches pretty far. You could get, get there from pretty far away. Definitely. All right. And we have Zachary Strebeck, who organized our panel today. Uh, he is the, the game lawyer. If you if you need legal advice for your, your game company, you're going to do a parody, and you're like, oh, can we get away with this? Or if you're just curious about more about this works, he has a, a podcast, the Legal Moves podcast. Yeah. gives you information about the, the legal side of game design and game publication. Uh, and he's here to answer more questions for us. What else do we know about you? Uh, I also have a blog, gamelawyerblog.com. will take you to my blog, and I write about game development legal issues all the time. And you have uh, boilerplate legal documents coming. Like if I need an artist contract or things like that? I'm working on something. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Working on something. Yeah. All right. I'm looking forward to that. Okay. Looking forward to that. Uh, we have Brian Henke of Overbold Games. Uh, Overbold is here at the show with their new game, Exposed. Uh, they have done six successful Kickstarters now, uh, expansions, different games, some of their own designs, signed external designers. Uh, their best-known game is probably Good Cop, Bad Cop. And that has gone through four or five print runs now. It's a great, it's a great game you could buy for twenty bucks. I highly recommend you pick it up. And then this fall they have uh, Leaders of Euphoria coming out, which is, it looks like it's going to be huge. Uh, and that's a good cup, bad cup game set in the Euphoria universe from uh, Jamie Stigmeyer to Meyer Games. Brian, what else do we know about you? Uh, earlier this year we published a game, Booze Barons, by Jeremy Commander, designed by Jeremy. So. Um, otherwise, yeah, we we are also on a podcast together, the board game business. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we do that too. Yeah, we just talk about uh, you know business issues in the in the uh, in the in our industry. So everything. That's about it. And we have JT Smith of the Game Crafter. Uh, if you are interested in game design, the Game Crafter is your best friend. It's a great starting place. Uh, if you want to get a nice looking prototype, you can, so you can actually convince people to play your game. That's where you go. You want to order review copies. Just send out to reviewers before your Kickstarter. You do that through the Game Crafter. Uh, you're going to do a small print run. You do that through the Game Crafter. And 
he started another business recently, which I'm a big fan of. That's called Tabletop.Events. And if you want to run your own convention, I've done three now, and I, I can Ben can probably relate to how much how much hassle and stress it is to run a convention. There's lots of pain points, and Tabletop and Events does it all turnkey for you. It makes it really easy to run your own even small local convention. So if you are thinking oh, I was going to try doing something, we're going to even in a, a one day event, take a look at Tabletop Events and make your life a lot easier. JT, what else do we know about you? Also, if you're running a four-day event, it'll work for that. <laughs> but I also uh, drop these around the room. Uh, so uh, this is a $5 gift certificate to the Game Crafter. So if you want to try us out, uh, grab one of those. If you didn't get one on your chair, you can come up afterward, and I have a few extra. Cool. So I'm going to start by asking you guys the questions. I'm, I'm curious. I'm going to ask first for, for Brett, for a stockpile... You hired a separate artist and a separate graphic designer to do the work for that game. Why did why did you decide to, that you needed a, a separate artist and a separate graphic designer? We were really trying to find the, the people or the, the person that would do the best job for our vision of the game. And as we were evaluating who that would be, we just we were so torn between the style that we really wanted to go after that we couldn't do it without Jackie Davis doing the caricatures that she does. She does a phenomenal job with them. And she just she did Euphoria as well, so her artwork is amazing and we just couldn't do without her but at the same time we needed someone with the graphic design expertise that could translate the game mechanics of stockpile into something that everyone could use and understand that's where Ian O'Toole our graphic designer came in he was just able to simplify our vision and put it down on paper so for us we just needed the two of them to get our vision across all right Ben when you were advising yeah 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 I was just going to say I used to be an artist and I know that Graphic design and illustration or, or caricature or anything, they're very different skill sets, right? And they're, they're focused on very different things, right? So it's important. I mean, you may have someone that can do both, but if you really want the best, separating those jobs, it makes sense. Most people that can do both don't both do both at the same level either. Mm, right, so right. if you want the best, get a separate illustrator and a separate uh, graphic designer. Yeah, it acts as checks and balances in some ways, too, because the artist may really just want to make something beautiful, but functionality is a huge aspect that you have to consider when making a game. So, so following up on art, let's say that I have a game design, and let's say I'm going to take one of two branches. I'm going to Kickstart it. How much art should I have done for my game before I go to Kickstarter? Or let's say I don't want to Kickstart it. I want to shop it to a publisher. And how much art do you think I need to have on my game before showing it to a publisher? This is for the, the whole panel. Who wants to weigh in on that? Uh, I'll weigh in on the shopping it around to a publisher part. Um, I've never really done my own art when shopping games around to a publisher, pitching games to publisher. Uh, in my opinion, uh, you need the game to look like you care about it. So <laughs> if, if it looks good enough that it looks like you care about it, uh, then I think it's good enough to show it to a publisher. I think fantastic art, professional art, won't hurt, but I also think that it's, in my opinion, not the best use of your time and resources to uh, to pay for anything or even to do any kind of illustrations yourself, you know, an illustrator. Um, I use Google Images. I use the nounproject.com, which is graphic design um uh, you know, icons, and that's good enough, I think, 99% of the time uh, to pitch games to publishers, at least in my opinion. Agreed. What about you, Brian? 
Yeah, I can I can speak from the the Kickstarter side of things. I I mean nowadays you you probably want to have pretty much all of your art done before you launch on Kickstarter. Um, I mean it's gonna it's gonna one just be you can you can send the review copies out to to reviewers get people excited about it. It'll have beautiful art that they'll be showing off of their videos and that kind of thing. Um, but then um, you'll also avoid a lot of uh, time at the end of the campaign when you just want to get the game out to your backers. So you could, you don't have to do a whole bunch of additional art, which can take a very long time, um, and you're restricted by the schedule of the artist and, and graphic designer too. So I, I would say you probably want to have uh, everything done if you can. But with the Kickstarter campaign, when when someone gives you advice about Kickstarter, they're in a different place than you are. You know, so when you're just starting out in your first game, it's going to be very different than when you've done a whole bunch of campaigns. So if you're just starting out, if you're willing to take a long time. You can have. You don't have to have all of your art done. You can kind of do it. Uh, have the important parts done, and, and maybe finish the rest after you make sure that you're going to fund. Just do as much art as you can afford for your Kickstarter. If you can afford to fund all of it in advance, do it. It's going to save you a ton of time. Plus, I mean, just the manufacturing process of getting it shipped out and everything. That's going to take you, you know, three to eight months anyway. You know, after the Kickstarter, so that's already a long time. People are waiting for your game. If you have to wait another six months for the art to be done, it's just people are going to forget about your game by the time it even gets to them. So um, do as much as you possibly can before you launch your Kickstarter. I hope that's a train. Not the end of the world. Let me ask Ben a follow-up question. So you said you know, I usually want my game to look good when I show it to a publisher, but I, you know, I don't really do art for it. Has a publisher ever rethemed your game and changed it? So like if you had done art, it would have been thrown out anyways? Yes. Yeah, okay. Yes. Uh, that happened on my first game. What became Mars Needs Mechanics was not themed that way. Uh, if I had done any art on the game or really put any time or money into it, it would have been a complete waste because they just went ahead and redid. Even if the theme stays the same, yeah. The publisher is probably going to redo the art anyway. So just enough to have them take you seriously is enough for me. Like Level 99 does most of their art with their in-house artists. They'd say, well, your art is cool. We want to throw it out and do our, our in-house artists so it's consistent with our other games. That's right. All right, I'm going to take a question from the audience. Who's, who's got a question for us? Yes. Um, trying to kickstart and publish the game yourself versus trying to shop it around to a publisher to... Uh, pros and cons of those two methods. Ah, okay. So I'm going to start with JT. You you kickstarted the Captain is Dead. Yep. Right, and you are sort of a, 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 a micro publisher as the game grafter, but you you could have taken that game to a bigger publisher. What what made you think you're like, oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna do this Kickstarter? I just really wanted to do a Kickstarter. Um, <laughs> it was that simple. But uh, publishing it. Or pitching it to a publisher is a different thing. If you want to run a Kickstarter, if you want to run a business, then you do a Kickstarter. Because Kickstarter is, I mean, even if it's a one-year business, it's still a business. You have to do all the accounting and marketing and all the stuff that goes with running a business if you're going to run a Kickstarter. Customer service, all of it. So if you don't have any interest in running a business, do not even consider doing a Kickstarter. You want to go to a publisher. And if you're going to shop it to a publisher, you want to build one of these things. This is called a sell sheet. It should have a diagram of the game on it, a little bit of words about what the game is about. Most importantly, your contact information up here, um, that sort of stuff. You're going to leave this with the publisher when, when you have a meeting with them, along with a copy of the actual game. You need to leave that with them as well. Um, and 
it's best to put some diagrams on here because this thing you can use to explain how is the game going. Because with a lot of meetings that you're going to have with publishers, you're not going to you're not going to have a meeting where you can break out the game. You'll get ten minutes. So you need to be able to explain the game in less than ten minutes and have every part of that conversation done in less than ten minutes. So that's why it's important to have one of these with a nice diagram to show them how you want to play the game and, and what the game's about. I'll say I'll say ten minutes is generous, maybe maybe even less. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Brett, what, what made you decide? Oh, we like our game. We don't want to take it to a publisher. We're going to do it ourselves. What made you that decision? A couple of things. So first, we were really we weren't really sure what we wanted to do. To be honest, we did we explored the path of publishing it through somebody else. But ultimately, what it came down to for us was just wanting to have control over the end product. Like we loved our game so much, we worked on it so much, we just didn't want to see it go to somebody else. And Frankly, we, we decided to commit the time that it would take to run a business because that's exactly what it turns into. I totally agree with that. So uh, it came down to us really just wanting ownership of it, wanted to make it more a part of our lives and turn what was really just a hobby into something more, getting into the industry and meeting all these awesome people. And how many hours a week do you think you spend doing the business side? <laughs> it's very sporadic. So for Kickstarters and around or during, after Kickstarters, it... it can be cumbersome. I would say recently it's been as much as like 30 hours a week. Um, so it's practically full time. But when I'm not doing Kickstarter stuff and we're just doing design and development, it doesn't even feel like work. It's just playing your own games and doing the stuff you already enjoy doing. So it's totally manageable, but there are some things that come along with it. Brian, I'm going to get to you, Ben. I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm saving you for the flip side. Right, that's right. I'm going to do it the other way. Uh, Brian, how many hours... Now, you have a, a line of titles, so that means you have a bunch of stuff out. You're in retail. Uh, you, you get customer service requests. My game was missing a piece. My, this card was crimped. How many hours a week do you spend on the business side of it? I would say it's uh, right around 40 hours a week, and, and it's pretty consistent. Um, but I also, um, I also will pay money to save me time. Mm-hmm. Not always, but I do that a lot. Uh, just because I know my time is limited. Um, I'm, a, I'm a consultant, so a lot of times I have a full-time job. Sometimes I take a break uh, in between contracts or that kind of thing, but I usually have a full-time job. But So I'm willing to, to spend some money just to save myself some time so that um, I can keep doing that with a stable income, and then when, it's, when we're you know, ready, then I can go full-time without the financial risk. So, yeah, that's kind of... How it works. I love the business side you know, of, of doing this. So that, that's... Is in, is interesting to me is designing games. So, what are the things that you is worth paying for to save time on? Which things do you? Yeah, yeah. Um, so there's uh, there's a company called Envoy. You can give them uh, you can give them money to um, to gather a whole bunch of people to uh, play your games at at, con- at uh, conventions and then also game stores all over the country. So you can pay them money to to handle all of that communication with, you know, hundreds of backers, or not backers, hundreds of, you know, gamers a year who will demo your game. So it costs a lot of money, but it saves me so much time in having to do that. All I have is a name and address, and I ship them a game, and they, they'll demo it. They'll take care of that. Um, so that would be an example. Um, what was the name of that again? Um, uh, Envoy. The double, double yeah, Exposure Envoy. Second, Envoy. Double Exposure yeah. Envoy. Got yeah. The same guys who do the first exposure playtest hall here at the con. Yeah. yeah there's... Their, Indie Indie Game Alliance is a similar company too. Yep, so they they do a similar service. So that kind of thing. Uh, Google for work. 
you can you can uh, hook up your domain name to uh, your email address. Um, so you can have, I can have Brian at overworldgames.com, but it goes through Gmail, and then there's it's so easy to find email. Like I spend so much of my time just emailing, finding emails, remembering what I told people, um, and then like you know continuing that conversation. So something like that, it's going to be uh, I think like ten bucks a month uh, for each email address you use. So it adds up if you have three email addresses. You know, 30 bucks a month is a lot, but if it's going to save me so much time, I'm willing to do that kind of thing. If you're looking for something just as good as Gmail that's half the price, go to fastmail.com. I'll check that out. And you can learn yeah. about that on the GameCrafter podcast. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, Jay, so JT said you did it because you wanted to do a Kickstarter. Mm-hmm. Uh, Brian and Brett were excited about running a business. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'll, I'll get you, I'll get back to you. And then, so I want to get, I want to get to Ben on the flip side. So here's the designer, several titles. You decided, usually, I'm, I'm not going to self-publish. I don't want to go Kickstarter. I want to shop it to a publisher, and then I want to hear from Zachary what he would advise a client trying to make the same decision, okay. trying to make that, what's the pros and cons from okay. the, the legal perspective. So, so Finn, what, what, what went through your mind, like, ah, weighing the, which way to go? Uh, I would say, to get right to it, do what you think is going to be fun. Uh, you're probably designing games because it's fun, you enjoy it, this industry is fun. If the design of if designing games is the fun part to you and that's what really gets you excited, then just do that. If the running the business part is what really gets you excited, then go that extra step and run the business. But don't turn it into something that feels like work, especially as you're starting to um, as starting out. So um, do the fun parts. For me, the fun part is the design and the development of the game. The business side of it does not sound like fun to me, so I would rather somebody else do that, and then I can move on to designing my next game while they're doing all the business side of getting my first game ready to be published. I'll say this. One option would be to partner up with someone who does enjoy the business side of things and work together. I don't know. uh, Do you... The, you're a partnership, right? Yeah, you have yeah, two of yeah. You. So, do you have different skill sets that you like, or yeah, you... for sure. For so, so for those of you that don't know, uh, Nabu Games is a combination between myself and Seth Van Orden, who's the primary brains behind Stockpile. Um, the two of us are a perfect complement. Mm-hmm. To your point, Seth is game design. That's really what he wants to do, and I do the business end of things because that's what I love to do. So, partnership in this industry is critical. Finding someone that can complement your skill sets, especially in this is awesome, and that's part of the reason why, like you are saying, do what's fun, do what you enjoy. I also say, you need to recognize that what the other person is doing is valuable, because a lot of times the designer of the game will say, well, I'm doing all the work, I'm designing the game, right? And sort of feel like they need, they should own 90% of the company, or something like that, or get, uh, but, you know, it's an extremely important skill set, extremely important to be able to sell your game and get it out there and handle all that business. I mean, it's invaluable, especially if you hate doing that. Yep, and the, the, I've seen lots of great game designs and protospiels and other events that mm-hmm. will never make it to market because the designer wants to do it themselves and they don't have the business skills to get it there. Yeah, right. Don't underestimate the value of, of a business partner. Right. The Captains is Dead came from that too, right? That was from a designer that couldn't get it out and you took it over and made it happen. Yep. Yeah. yep. All right. You had a follow-up question? Um, yes, about the Gmail thing. Is that just a redirectable email where people actually help you read your email and like respond to things? Oh, no, yeah. It's really just... Um, uh, 
not even a redirection. It's just that it'll uh, it's not you'll a log in. It's yeah, like you'll. It's not, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but but it also the organizing, like it'll it'll combine all of the emails with the you know from the same person yeah. with the same subject right. and that kind of thing and do a nice little easy to read you know section. You can just searching is just super fast. Oh, you got the yeah. gentleman against the wall over there. Yeah. Let's answer. What's the chances of a game being successful on Kickstarter? Define success. First. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think we're all game developers here, so we all want our games to sell. We don't necessarily want to be millionaires, but maybe I think a lot of us would like to make it our full-time job. Um, so that, I guess, me would be success. Really, to pay my bills. Mm. <laughs> well, I mean, okay. it's interesting because Brian here is—I would consider him successful. He's run six successful. Kickstarters, but he still has a full time job. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How about just he has a full time job. He has a full time job. Yeah. Yeah. Is that a success too? So, that could be a success. So giving funds and like people hearing about the game buying it, right? Versus if you get it to a publisher, that game ever seeing your game on the shelf. If you're not a business person and you don't plan your Kickstarter like a business, getting funded can be easy. That doesn't mean you'll be successful. You could definitely go belly up very quickly because if you don't plan for shipping properly or if you don't deal with the fact that you're going to have to deal with customer service, all these different things. So getting funded isn't a measure of success. What is a measure of success is could you get your game to the market, to all the people that want it, and still be profitable? That is a measure of success. And that is a very tricky thing to do, whether you're a publisher or a Kickstarter. There are a lot of publishers that go out of business every year or have flops of games that, you know, they'll do a 5,000 run of a game and sell maybe 500 copies of it. So, uh, you know, that it's tricky either way. Um, don't think yeah. it's easy. Yeah, and, and, I, and you can, um, you, you know, so like you said that you, you love Stockpile. You, like, you wanted to create this, like, this was your baby. You wanted to make it. Um, you wanted to make sure it happened and have control over it. Um, and I think it's, um, so you can get that, you know, the way going through Kickstarter, um, but you can also, you can also kind of shoot yourself in the foot too, because if you can get AEG to publish your game, you're going to have, you know, so many more copies, you know, you might be able to do it yourself and have it exactly how you want it, but maybe you're going to sell 500 copies, but then AEG might do it, sell 5,000, you know, or 10,000 copies. So there's a difference too. I mean, even if you want your baby to be successful, it can be way more successful if you let someone else have a little control. Brett, did, did you get into retail? Is, is, is your, are you in retail? Yeah, we're in like probably 20 to 30, no, 20, like 20 distribution, like big name distribution places all across the world. So we've got Alliance, and GTS, and Line Rampant. That's hard to do when you only have one title. That's right. Uh, so yeah, we're really proud of that. Uh, we work really hard with to get on distribution with just one title. It's it's, it's rare nowadays, especially for that to happen. Many times you need multiple titles, but we've been very fortunate to be able to work with tons of partners around the world to get our game created. I'll, I'll give you I'll give you an example. I think it's a, a good example. So a friend of mine is local to where I am is uh, Grant Rodiak. He's got a Cry Havoc out here at Gen Con. He's got lots of lots of buzz. Uh, and so he did a game, a little card game called Farmageddon, which I, I really love. It's this fun, cute little card game. And he originally signed that with a publisher. And so he would tell the story that he goes, well, that was the Lunch Buddy game. He goes, that game is successful. It's in retail. It's still selling. And every quarter I get a check for like $23 in royalties. 
And that it's lunch money. You know, I get I go to Subway and go, all oh, right, there we go. That's like <laughs> spending my check, and that's all that really did for him. And then his publisher went bankrupt, uh, and he got the game back, and now he's republishing it himself. But you know, a small game like that, a small ticket uh, game, is not going to make a huge amount of money. And I would say, unless you have a game that's very successful that goes through multiple print runs or generates multiple expansions, it's really not going to generate any significant amount of income. It's going to get you hundreds of dollars, maybe thousands of dollars. Unless you have a big breakout hit, a home run, uh, it's not really going to make enough money that I'm ever going to make a living off of it. And so, how much money you make depends on how you're doing things. Like, if you're doing through print on demand, maybe you make five dollars a copy. If you're selling it off of your own website, maybe you make twenty dollars a copy. If you're selling it through distribution, you probably make back down to five dollars a copy again because the distributor has to take their cut, the retailer takes their cut, that sort of stuff. If you're going through a publisher, a publisher is probably going to take all of it and give you fifty cents to a dollar fifty a copy, something like that. So that's what you're looking at as far as you know the kind of money that's going to come in. So to quit your day job, for example, as a game designer, there are probably half a dozen or a dozen people in the world that solely on game design, not, not having a stake in a publisher or other things, solely on game design, do it. And it's taken them how many years, you know, 20 years probably, to have enough games where they make enough off of those games to make a living off of it. Imagine I get 50 cents or a buck a copy as my royalty as the designer, and the game is moderately successful. They print 5,000 copies or 10,000 copies to sell that. It's, you know, 5,000 bucks, 10,000 bucks tops, or maybe half that. And then I'd say a lot of games don't even print, do print runs that large. Right. Yeah, I'll, let me take uh, over here. So, backtracking a little bit, you talk about working with a partner. Um, when you are working with someone, like how, how do you protect your investment from the start? I mean, when, because it's real easy for everybody to say, yeah, we're going to split everything right down the middle when there's no money coming in. <laughs> Um, but like, how do you think ahead and, and kind of plan for that? This is tailor-made for yeah. the man in the middle yeah, right yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. Hire someone like me and have a partnership <laughs> agreement or, or create an LSE or something like that where you both have, you know, it doesn't have to be equal ownership, but, you know, whatever you think that you're I would recommend into. not doing equal ownership, actually, because just like a prenup for a divorce, sure. if something goes bad along the line, you guys get bad blood, you want to have somebody be the decisive side of the thing. If you're 50-50, it can get really, really bad. Yeah, it's tough, especially, I mean, usually when we draft LLC agreements, there are certain decisions that require unanimous uh, votes, right? And if there's two of you and you both have an opposite uh, opinion on it, that, that obviously creates problems. You know, and we put things in there that you would have to find an arbitrator to you know, help you decide and all of this stuff, but all this time and money, and you, know, you just don't want to have to deal with it. So, Brian, you have, you, you have a partner. Yeah. What kind of how's your business set up? Partnership corporation? Well, when you when you when you have a business partner, someone is always going to be doing more work, and so you either need to be okay with that, both sides, uh, or you need to create a contract that will take that into account. Um, so my my business partner has been my friend for many 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 years, uh, a childhood friend. So it's easy for us when we first started. We didn't really have much, you know. For a contract, it was all pretty much just like, you know, we trust each other, you know, it, well, we know we would never, like, hurt the other person in, you know, in any way, financially. We weren't worried about it. Uh, we probably should have been, um, and we probably should be now, and we do have, you know, all the, you know, contracts that, that we need to, the the uh, business agreements uh, that we need uh, for that, too. We've done that paperwork, but now uh, I have a lot more, with my, my day job, I have, I have the luxury of spending more time on the company. So I do, and then what we do is actually what it's uh, kind of interesting. We take the last uh, 
year, six months or year of profits. Um, and then we have a percentage based on kind of basically how much work that we do. So I have a larger percentage of that profit. Um, the more money we make, the larger amount of money, you know, we both get. Um, and then I get, you know, more than he does. And we're all okay with that. And, uh, and so it works for us. But every partnership is going to be different. So you, you have to do what makes, uh, I mean, both of you or three of you happy. But I guess it's just communication. If someone's feeling like they're doing more work and they should, they're not getting paid for it uh, or the recognition they deserve, you just need to communicate. I mean, that's and then and then change your contract to um, to to make sure that that reflects what the work that's actually being done. Brett, how do you, how do you do it? Do you have a set up as a corporation? You're set up as a partnership. Set up we're set up as an LLC that functions as a partnership. Um, and so just Seth and I, we did split it down the middle, but because of the divorce of business versus game design and the amount of time we spend on each, it, it really feels pretty dang equal because when it comes to playtesting and design development, set this so much in the way of, I'm going to playtest this, I'm going to iterate on that next development, I'm going to go play this game six times a week. I can't do that. Um, but once that game's ready, I will commit virtually full-time to making it ready, building the Kickstarter campaign, running customer service, emailing everything. So it's there's a lot of work that goes on behind the scenes, and thankfully that, that works out for us. But there's definitely room to create some sort of contract to solidify that agreement. So we have a partnership agreement that specifies many of these different things out for us. So I think an unequal partnership is a good idea, too. I have, I have a design partner I do all my games with, and we have kind of an unequal partnership in that I do more work, but he's higher value. He has a PhD in math. Uh, and so he does a lot of very core game design. It's very valuable. It's very high. You're hired a math consultant. It's very expensive. Uh, but he's at home, and I'm here at Gen Con. So I'm, I'm doing the I'm doing the work. And so generally, I get a bigger share of the games. Uh, I want to take another question. Um, you had you had one earlier. I don't remember what it was. Okay. Yes, sir. Um, you mentioned reviewers, and I wanted to find out when should you involve a reviewer? How do you choose them, and how much time do you give them? Oh, yeah, here we go. That's a great question. So this is, we're going the Kickstarter route. I need to mail out review copies. Before my Kickstarter starts, how far before my Kickstarter starts am I sending out these review copies, and how much time do I give reviewers? Who wants to weigh in on that? Depends on the reviewer. It's anywhere from a month to six months. Uh, You'll want to contact them at least two months in advance, even if they are a one-month kind of thing, because they all have schedules. Uh, if you're more friendly with them, you might get the one month. Most of them are going to require at least two months. Um, we have a list of reviewers. If you go to thegamecrafter.com and click on the help section, you'll be able to find, we have a list of reviewers of about, I think, 30 or 40 reviewers. So you can go and find a reviewer that matches your type of game or several reviewers that match your type of game and start just talking to them. So. And you could, you could upload your files to the Game Crafter, have it printed and sent right to that reviewer. Yes. Makes takes a lot of the pain pain out of it there. And we also want to weigh on, do you send review copies? You, you actually you send about a print and, play, print and play review copies out, right? Uh, do you well, send physical copies out too? No, no, physical copies. Physical, uh, how many yeah. did you send out? Um, well, for Stockpile, I feel like we sent out we sent out probably about a dozen at least. And, okay. Uh, it just grew exponentially over time. But so was, I would say definitely starting out with, you need reviews when you launch a Kickstarter campaign. It's plain and simple. And two to six months, definitely agree. Um, I, I would say make sure that you have at least two to three when your campaign goes live. See if you can get a few others to come in as they're, as they're going. So two to three months before you're up, make sure you're contacting reviewers and go from there. 
we continue to send reviewers games. You need to keep your game relevant. It continues to drive traffic to it, sales. I mean, I have people coming up today and saying, oh, I just saw a review. My game's stockpile's been out for a year. That doesn't mean that everybody saw it a year ago, but you need to keep it relevant. It needs to be top of mind. Word of mouth is huge in this industry. I'll give, I'll give you one more example. You may have seen uh, Rodney's Watch It Play. Have you seen Rodney Watch It Play? It's a great series. Rodney's booked up for six months. So you want Rodney to do a tutorial how to play your game? Six-month waiting list to, to get there. Uh, so that it's going to be... Well, we really want to plan that in advance before you do your Kickstarter. You've got to have that, that 30-day window, 90-day window, six-month window you're planning out. I wanted to take a question over here. Okay. What's the typical first print run size? Ah, typical first print run size. Let's try to do this from the Kickstarter side and the publishing side as well. Uh, Brian, what was your, your first print run for your first Kickstarter, which is good copy, bad copy? How many copies is that? We only did about 750. And so we, we actually put it into a deck of playing cards. It was a 54-card game. So we were able to just print. Uh, so normally for a, for a bigger game like this, it would usually be, you know, like if you go to a, a full-run print uh, manufacturer, it'll be 1,500 copies. That'll be what you need. Uh, but because we put it in a really small box, we were able to do less, which is great. It was our first Kickstarter. We only had 350 backers. So we could just uh, print 350 copies if we wanted. And we printed some extras. Um, and that's the way we did it, so it worked, worked really well. Um, and that's exactly what you do with, with GameCrafter, too. We, what we did was we, uh, we uh, projected everything based on GameCrafter. We were planning on just using GameCrafter to do it. And then we got enough backers where we were able to do a larger print run, and, and we actually had kind of three phases to it. Um, if we would have gotten more, we would have done an, an even bigger print run of it in a bigger box, that kind of thing. So we, we kind of fell in the middle, and so that's what we, what we went with. Catherine's dead. How many did you print first printing? 1700 1700 yeah. yeah. And we ben, did it all in-house. Then a client comes to you, they're trying to how many I want to print, how big their print run is going to be, what advice do you give them for planning on how big their print run is going to be? So they're going to Panda, they're already doing a larger run. What's, what, what's kind of the scale or the ideas you give them? So at, uh, at Panda specifically, our minimum order quantity is 1500 mm -hmm. So 1500 and then up to, there's no limit, but minimum 1500 So what we tell people is, Come to us, get a quote, know how much your game is going to cost to make. We can give you a quote at 1500 at 3000 at 5000 You'll know what your game costs to make at all those quantity levels. Then go run your Kickstarter, see how your Kickstarter does, and as the Kickstarter is, is winding down, starting to end, then you come back to us and we're working with you and go, okay, hey, we did great. We raised $80,000 and we had uh, 2,500 backers and it looks like we're going to print 4,000 copies. Terrific. If your Kickstarter met the minimum goal and you got you know 500 backers and you're going to do the minimum print run of 1,500, that's great. So obviously don't make that decision of what you're going to print before your Kickstarter runs because it's obviously going to be largely dependent on how you do uh, in the Kickstarter. Um, but you can do all that planning up front to know what your cost structure is going to be. From a manufacturing standpoint, do not go to Kickstarter before you have reliable cost estimates for your game. Do not guess what it's going to cost to make your game. Know exactly what it's going to cost to make your game. Uh, if you're going to introduce a stretch goal in your Kickstarter campaign, know exactly how much that's going to cost you to upgrade from a cardboard component to a wood component to a plastic miniature. Don't guess how much that's going to cost uh, and so you want to know all those numbers uh, before you commit anything out to your backers, anything out uh, to anyone else. You want to know what it's going to cost you. Make sure it's going to be profitable. Um, 
One other thing, if I could say from a manufacturing perspective, um, stretch goals are great. Uh, stretch goals that you are going to reach and then you're going to give to everybody and put in every copy of the game. Those are fantastic. Be careful about doing specific different um, different versions of the game. Uh, we've seen a lot of project creators say, oh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to offer eight different versions of the game. So everybody's going to get to choose what version of the game they want. I'm going to make everybody happy. What ultimately ends up happening is three people decide they want version seven of the game. <laughs> and now you're stuck making this plastic component, which has a $2,000 mold fee, so that you can put it in three copies of the game. And all of a sudden, your profit from your Kickstarter just whoop, went and hit the floor. So be very careful about offering different versions of your game with different components because you could get stuck making something for three people. And I would say that the stretch goals can also add to the weight of your game, yes. which changes how much it costs to ship. And That's I've right. seen that eat many, many creators. They, oh, I have these stretch goals. Right. I did cost them out with my manufacturer. I did not cost them out for the weight for shipping. You tip over into a new class of weight, and suddenly all your profit goes away again. Right. Now, we have at Panda, I just, I'm a project manager, and we're just wrapping up a project. First-time creator, first-time Kickstarter, 10,500 print run. Nice. They did great on their Kickstarter. That's amazing. So that can happen with your first Kickstarter. You know, If you're building community ahead of time and you're getting the word out there and doing reviewers and all the stuff you need to do beforehand, um, but 1,500 is our minimum at Panda. Brent, how many did you print Stockpile Print Run one, number one? Number one was 2,000. 2,000. Mm -hmm. 2,000. Okay. So there we go. And GTI, I was going to cut you off. Do you want to say something else? Uh, yeah, you need to calculate not only what your manufacturing costs are, but you need to know your shipping costs to the letter. Uh, and actually, we provide a service that will help you with that. We have a thing called the bulk order fulfillment system, which is what you would use if you were going to manufacture through us um, after a Kickstarter. But you can actually use it before to just get uh, pricing for the weight of your game to you know all 200 or 300 countries in the world, whatever it is. You just basically, upload, once you have your game defined in our system, you, you can actually download a spreadsheet that we provide that will tell you all of your shipping prices. Uh, and that's very important to have because it gets very expensive. Now, there are ways to even reduce that, of course. When you're shipping internationally, you want to use some other, uh, some other people that will help you ship internationally. Domestically, uh, you don't want to ship these out one at a time if you can help it because it's going to cost you $60, $70, $80, a game to ship it internationally some places. So uh, be careful with that. So when I upload my files to the Game Crafter to mail my review copies, I should be looking at the shipping prices all over the world, even if I have no intent of using them, just to get me some, some yep. ideas. Yep. All right, I want to take another question. Um, I, like probably most folks in the room, I've been doing a lot of reading, research, and going to a lot of panels like this. Uh, so I'm learning a lot about the looking at a Kickstarter angle, start, middle, finish, all that stuff. One of the places I'm still kind of missing a piece of information, though. So let's say you kickstart a game, you get like 500 backers, and then you go to Panda and you order 1,500 copies. Mm -hmm. You get your 500 copies that you mail out to your backers. Where does the last 1,000 copies go? <laughs> <laughs> into your garage. Exactly. Uh, no, yeah. garage. Hopefully, Hopefully not into your garage. Into your apartment. Uh, into your apartment. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Uh, Brian, you want to you want to take a crack at that one? Sure. Um, there's a lot of uh, so there's um, 
they're they're gonna. I mean, short answer, they're gonna go in your garage. You're gonna you're you're gonna have to sell them somehow. You're gonna have to sell them online, but it's gonna be really hard to drive traffic to your website. Um, you can go to conventions and sell them at conventions, but it's gonna be hard to drive traffic to your booth because you probably it's a game that probably nobody's heard of. Um, so you'll have to you'll have to work hard. You'll have to demo out there. You'll have to you know get people to excited about your game and 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 sell them on it at conventions. Um, in order to sell as many of those as you can, but a thousand copies, you'll be doing that for the next ten years, going to conventions trying to sell those. So uh, the other, so if you can, you'd want to go to a consolidator. So there's a few consolidators in the industry, uh, PSI Impressions, um, and there's some other ones too, um, and they will help you uh, get your copies into distributors. Uh, there's distributors all over the U.S., all over the world. Um, that's where you, uh, if you can get enough buzz going for your game, you can get those distributors to buy 500 copies easy um, in the first month after you release. Um, and then there you go, there's 500. Um, and then, this, depending on how that does, they'll do reorders. Um, I should mention, though, that those guys are not a guarantee. No. They, yes. No. Yeah, they regularly turn people down. So. Yeah. All the time. Yeah. So if you only have one game, yeah. they... they it's very hard to get into a new client as a new client to that consolidator if you only have one game. If you yep. don't have a line of games, they're very skeptical about taking you. Yeah. You're better off doing something. I mean, I'm pitching me, but it's it's for your benefit. <laughs> right. um, you're better off doing a print run, print on demand until you get to a level where you can do a full run because that way you're not having to deal with that sort of stuff. So. What I recommend to people, we have a maximum discount of 100 copies, right? So, I mean, that's where we give the best discount because our business is not like their business. Their business starts at 1,500. Ours kind of ends at 100. But you can still use that 100 discount all the way up to however many you want. So build your campaign around selling 100 copies produced by us. So all of your costs are figured in there. And if you happen to hit it out of the park, you should go there because you're going to make a hell of a lot more money. Um, but if you don't make it that far, you've still got your game out there and you don't have a garage full of them. We produced it for you and shipped it to all of your backers and you've got your name out there and now you can use that campaign to parlay into your next campaign where hopefully you can actually get to a full-run manufacturer. Mm -hmm. So in that scenario, maybe I print 600 copies, Mm -hmm. you send out to my 500 backers, I get 100 in my garage that I go to cons for and try to build more buzz for my game to see if I can then get picked up with a bigger, a second print run. Right. Yep. Brett, where did you ship your games? Oh, so yes, Zachary. Well, I have a question. If you want to ask him that first, I'll ask after. Oh, yeah, yeah. So where did your games, how many, you printed the 2,000, where did they go? So 660 went to Kickstarter backers. I had 1,300 right off the bat. We came to Origins. Uh, Directly after, we sold 200 at Origins. We came to Gen Con. We sold 200 at Gen Con. Once the reviewers hit the dice tower, I sold a thousand to distributors directly within a month. So it was sold out months, like one or two months after Gen Con, and then we started reprinting more in the middle range with these guys. And you shipped pallets so, from your printer to Gen Con and Origins, or did it somewhere else first? So we happen. So there's a ton of services out there that you can use. That you can. There's warehouses all over the place to do fulfillment and logistics, and there's plenty of ways to just store your stuff there. You pay for pallets of storage, and send them your list of orders, and they'll ship it out. So there's tons of services out there, and they'll do it whether or not, you know, it's just a contract you negotiate. And we can talk more about that later if people have questions, but um, 
Yeah, that, that's pretty much the. Well, that's the, 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 I just want to say that's really uncommon though too. Yes. Like you, yeah, 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 yeah. you got that, you that, were that was super successful. <laughs> like for every yeah, yes. thousand <laughs> games like that, you know, one will be that. That's successful. the top two percent. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, my joke question would be, how do you make the game that's that successful? But <laughs> how, what what can you do? Okay, so Ben, you have all these miniatures and things here, right? As game pieces that Panda will make. And JT, you have on your site, it'll, it'll say all the different parts that you can order and put in your game. So what, what are the considerations when you're designing your game? How far ahead you should be thinking ahead to manufacturing that game too, right? Oh yeah, you should, when you're planning your Kickstarter, you get the quote from us and him. Uh-huh. You're not doing, you're, you do both. But what if you really uh-huh. want these guys in there? <laughs> if you really want what those you guys in there, you have, to, you have to reach his level. Yeah. Because we're not going to mold stuff for you. That's not what we do. We, anything that's printable, we'll do it for you. But if you want to get something that's molded or whatever, that's where Panda comes in and they kick ass at that. Um, but you have to get to their levels right. to do that. Um, so you start off small. In fact, on your first Kickstarter game, don't do miniatures. You can't. You're, you're not going <laughs> kind of to yeah. do it. Uh, start off with a card game or a small board game. <laughs> try, you want to try and have a, a funding goal of around $5,000, including all of your shipping and all of your other costs. Because if you try to go up to a ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollar Kickstarter, you're likely going to fail your first time out because nobody knows who the hell you are. So uh, start with a very low, like five thousand goal. That's a reasonable goal for you to achieve, and you still might get a hundred thousand copies, you know, because you hit it out of the park. But start reasonable. One, one thing. So, I want, sorry. Two grand mold fee. I haven't made a mini yet. Two grand for the molds. Right. Uh, I mean. For that exact piece, I don't know what the exact number is. That sounds but, about right. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's about reasonable and, you know, 2000 that's right. Um, at Panda, though, when you pay for a mold, if you're putting these two pieces in your game and you pay for the mold to make these pieces, um, you own the mold in the sense that when you go to reprint the game later, we don't charge you that mold fee again. So that's a one-time upfront mold fee that you pay, and then you can reprint the game for... 50 years, and we'll never charge you that that one-time upfront mold fee, and we will never let anybody else use this mold. This is your mold because you paid for it. So, um, so that's how custom plastics, custom metal, uh, anything that requires a mold fee works with us. All right, I wanted to take uh, from the back here. What am I paying the graphic designer or the artist? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Different. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of resources out there, though. Like there, there are. Yeah. There's. There's. I've seen plenty of resources out there that have consolidated some rates of different artists. I, am I crazy? You, do you guys know what I'm talking about? There. Yeah. 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 Behance. You could go find an artist yeah. there. Yeah. yeah. There's some out there. If you look at some of the blogs from uh, like Jamie Stegmeyer and James Matthew, I know they're they're pretty big online and some of the social media groups and stuff like that. They have lists and stuff, and I believe even IGA has a list of of stuff out there as well. I don't know. It depends on how well known the artist is. So you hired you hired you hired Beth, who's very well known. Jackie. Oh, sorry, Jack. Jackie. Very well known in the industry. Very established. So you probably paid a premium for that artwork. Yeah. Versus if you hired you know, someone off Deviant Art in Malaysia, who you know had a much more competitive rate, had nice stuff, but you'd never heard of before, sure. uh, and you and you paid for that that name recognition and that I. A, a visual style that you recognize. Sure. So there, I mean, there's a variety of different rates that you can pay, but like we can talk like per piece per card, 
cover art, like it just depends on the differences. Is there a specific example you may have wanted that we can talk about, or well, resources? Well, it depends on who you hire. So yeah. I know Brian has hired an expensive artist and a, a relatively inexpensive artist, and said all over the map, even even in, in, within your games. Yeah, what's up? I mean, I want to share everything that I've learned through this process, and I like doing that. But for something like that, I can't really share how much I paid someone to do a job. Like, I don't feel like I can do that. Uh, I mean. I, I don't want to. I don't want to say that you know Jackie Davis is going to do it. Do you know Excellent. every card for a hundred dollars? Because every card is going to be different. It's uh, she's going to change her rates, and you know th- everything's going to. Ch- I can't really publicize that, so um, it can be a little tricky to find that. I would say just try to make connections in the industry and talk to somebody who's done it before, and they can give you a ballpark. Uh, Visit Artist Alley out in the exhibit hall also, yeah. and just look at. Look at the art styles and find one you like. Talk to those people and see what their rates are. It'll give you a good uh, needle to move from. There's not an in- one industry rate. Yeah. 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 Uh, we are almost out of time, so maybe we can take one or two more questions. I do want to be respectful for the, the next one. Oh, is it two-hour panel? <laughs> no. Yeah, two-hour panel. I guess, what means do you take to advertise the game both you know, while it's in Kickstarter and after Oh, yeah. I always they should, they should come to my Kickstarter panel tomorrow. So, <laughs> average, so I, I want to advertise my game, say Kickstarter. We talked about review copies earlier. Uh, do I pay for banner ads? Do I pay for a marketing service? Uh, let, let's start with JT, because I love JT's answer here. You do? Yeah, I heard, I heard it last time. <laughs> All right. I, I don't pay for ads <laughs> of any kind. Um, I do uh, a lot of social media. I mean, my companies are all really tightly into that. In fact, show of hands, who tweeted that they were coming to this thing or did something, a Facebook post, anything, right? Woo! Good, good. You should be doing that. You need to be active. Everything you do in the industry, every single thing, including coming to something like this, you should be tweeting, Facebooking, Instagramming, whatever, every single time. And if you get involved in that, you can start building a follower base, and then you don't have to pay for ads. Because this, these days, people are so desensitized to ads, they rarely work. So I don't pay anything. Uh, I want to ask Brett to answer if you spent ads for your first campaign and then you dismiss you. Yeah, so sure. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I'm going to run to a bit. There's, this is a, one of the downsides of being a small publisher is you have to be everywhere at once, so I'm going to have to run to something else. But uh, to answer the question, um, some of the most effective spend has been on BoardGameGeek and on Facebook. Um, so that's the two areas that I would recommend looking at. But there's been... I've seen tons of other examples. I, I would say some of the most effective ways you can spend your time in promoting and not just paying for it is is going to some of these conventions and playing in the first exposure like playtest yep. areas or even just like finding a table sitting down and saying, please play my game. We were here two years ago with a donut box of stockpile and because of the feedback and the playtest we got here, that's how we made the game into what it became. So just time and Time equals money, and it depends on how you want to invest them, as we kind of already discussed. Brian, you do a lot of social media for Overworld Games. Did you run any ads for Exposed? For Exposed, yeah, we did BGG ads. Um, we, I've, I've used, uh, I do, I'll, have to, I'll have to talk to, to Brett later about uh, Facebook ads, because uh, I, I've done, I tried them before, and I don't know what they, I don't, I don't, I'm not good at it, so they didn't do well for me, but I know they can. Uh, so I need to learn how to uh, figure out how to do them well. And I think it's the same with banner ads, too. If you do them, you need to know how to create banner ads. You can't just throw something up there. You need something that's going to grab people's attention. 
Um, I, I've spent uh, quite a bit on ads, and, and honestly, I'm not seeing the return. Um, but it's something that you know I kind of have to do. You kind of have to. I, I learned through doing it, and I've learned that I haven't figured out how to use ads effectively. So I either need to get better at using ads or not use them and use things that are, are free. I mean, I do a lot of social media, too, because it is kind of a, a free way to get exposure, but, like, interact with other people, too. Yeah, and you've got to, if you're going to use social media or come to conventions or any of those things, it's got to be a give and take. You can't just yeah. constantly be asking people. You help yeah. other people achieve their success, and then they will help you. Yep. Um, also, if you are going to spend money on ads, be ridiculously targeted. As targeted as you think you're being, you're not targeted enough, trust me. Uh, every dollar you spend is wasted unless you have targeted the narrowest possible group of people you can with that particular ad. So, like, my wife, for example, does convention planning. She will actually buy ads that are geofenced to the convention center for her, uh, for her whatever she's promoting. So only the people in the convention center will see those ads. That's how targeted she does you know, for that sort of thing. And it really depends on whatever it is that you're going to do. You want to target to the narrowest, like some of the Facebook ads that we've run that have been successful, targeted 126 people total in the world. Out of the billions of people on Facebook, 126 were the maximum number of people that would see that particular ad. And it was effective because it was only those people that would be interested in this particular type of ad. Mm-hmm. So... Let me ask, who's willing to stay afterwards to answer additional questions like out in the hallway? JT Will? I'm going to need to go at 6. I got to go meeting too. as well, yeah. Brian, you going to hang out? You gotta sure, hang out. I can okay. hang out. There we go. Zach, can you hang out? Yeah, of course. All right, so we'll, we'll hang out in the hall afterwards for some you know, additional questions. We're going to take one more, and then we should wrap up and call it call it a day, because I want to be respectful for our room time. So let's send over here. Yeah, so how do you go about setting the age range for your game? Is there any legal ramifications? Yeah, uh, there's a big legal ramification for age range for your games. <laughs> Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll take a crack at this, and then I'll throw to JT. So in the U.S. and Europe, there's a law it. that governs whether or not your game can be sold to, to children. Games mm-hmm. are classified as toys. And uh, if you are making a game and you want to put like below 12 or 13 on the box, your game has to have gone through a testing process, a chemical <laughs> testing process, to prove that it's not harmful uh, that it, if ingested. Uh, and so you have to meet that threshold if you want to put an age range below that on your box. Particularly if you want to shift to Europe and sell your game in Europe. So you see a lot of games will say 12 or 13 plus, not because the game is that difficult, because they didn't want to pay for the testing to meet the threshold for the consumer safety laws in the U.S. There are some... Panda, can Panda tell me if certain components I order through you are going to pass that test or have been pre-tested? So... I will say that everything Panda makes will pass any test that you want to run. Um, I'm going to respectfully disagree with some of oh, yeah? with what you just sure. said because actually at Panda, 99% of our clients do not pay for testing and the games get through customs just fine. Now, it's not a guarantee. Customs might hold something up. If you have 6 plus, 8 plus on your, on your box... Uh, they might hold it up, but 99% of the time in our experience, it's gotten through customs just fine, and it's not a problem. Customs so, isn't really your biggest issue, though. Yeah, yeah. It's if you get sued and you don't have yes. that test, that's where it becomes a problem. It's afterwards in the market. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. 
JT, your components of the GameCrafter are not pre-tested, right? So yeah. Some of them are, some of them aren't. We, we don't label it because we just don't want to be involved in that. You have to, right. uh, if you're going to use us, us, our stuff, you have to be 13 plus. I will right. say, I was at the AdMagic panel yesterday, and AdMagic is doing a thing where they're pre-testing all their components and giving it to their clients that, hey, these components are all certified safe, which yeah. I thought was very impressive. Uh, but yeah, Pan- Panda will not make anything that will not pass a test. It, it uh, depending on the tests you run and how complicated your game is, it could be anywhere from a few hundred dollars to a few thousand dollars. Uh, if you want to test for several areas of the world and you've got plastics and metal, it's going to be more expensive than if you're just testing for the United States and it's just a card game. All right, thank you very much for coming. We're going to wrap up.